I'm missing, and this is exactly, I think, relates to it relates to my personal background. It relates to the issues that I'm working on. What I'm missing in, or what I don't find enough explicit in relation to sustainable development goals, and what I feel actually has been sort of being reduced or ignored is the rights agenda. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Uh, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. Ed, please uh, go ahead. Thank you very much, uh, Maurice. My name is Ed Schenkenberg. I'm uh, the director sitting in Geneva and the director of a humanitarian think tank called HERE, Humanitarian Evaluation Research Exchange. Uh, I'm happy to explain to you and to the, your listeners, Maurice, uh, what HERE does. Um, we're a small organization. Um, actually, I must admit, my view is on the lake, so um, it's quite a convenient uh, environment we're in. But um, just to say that in that sense, uh, yeah, Geneva is a very convenient um, environment. Uh, but in reality, what we are um, working on as a think tank is what we call the gap between policy and humanitarian practice. So in reality, the issues we work with are um, much less rosy and much less um, um, uh, luxurious than the environment um, our office is in. Uh, because really what we're concerned about is people affected by, by crisis and conflict um, as such. Uh, knowing that um, governments um, of these countries, um, international organizations, particularly based in this town, which is one of the reasons why we're based in Geneva, uh, UN organizations, that is, um, NGOs and so on, have all roles and responsibilities, mandates or missions to address um these situations of crisis, um, and you know whether they are doing their jobs is exactly what my organization is uh, is looking at in the sense of um, you know um, understanding and reviewing whether the commitments organizations have made are in fact those commitments are in fact part of the work uh, are addressed by what these organizations are doing on the ground. Here was created in 2014 precisely because around that time. There was talk on, and that, uh, as many of um, uh, your listeners um, may know, uh, 2016 was particularly the year in which the World Humanitarian Summit was held. So, um, obviously, in those years, um, part of a development, a huge increase in the attention to humanitarian action, which, you know, you could say generally is a good thing, but obviously mm -hmm. there was more attention to it because, in fact, the needs 
the number of conflicts, the needs of people affected by these conflicts and so on were uh, increasing and were also rising exponentially. So, um, you know, as I said in the beginning, obviously we're, um, it's, 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 it's a positive thing that organizations, you know, make commitments in relation to the mandates and the missions they, they have. But then, of course, it becomes important that actually, yeah, they, there is an external eye, so to speak, uh, an observer that actually reviews whether they, uh, what they do, what they preach, whether they actually also practice that. So um, that is actually what my organization is about since 2014. We're doing this at the request of organizations. So they specifically contract us to, to do evaluations or to do reviews of their policies and practices. Uh, but we can also do this. Um, and this is equally, if not more important, at our own initiative. Obviously, we need to find organizations then willing to work um, with us. But that degree of independence, of course, being an evaluator is quite important to have a degree of independence in terms of making if you like, objective um, assessments and analyses as to, you know, um, the, 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 the challenges, uh, the, the achievements of organizations, but also their challenges, so to speak. And, and you know, I think a key word there is, uh, or key words, I should say, is honesty and trust. So, you know, mm -hmm. obviously organizations need, we need to create trust with organizations to share with us their, their challenges. That also requires a certain degree of honesty. You know, obviously, organizations often want to show that they're doing good, also under pressure to receive new funds for future operations. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a little bit of a reluctance uh, in that sense to, to be open uh, on one's challenges, so to speak. At the same time, I think there's an oral, I mean, it goes without saying, there's a, there's a moral and ethical obligation, really, to be open on, on one's challenges and to say, well, actually, there are things we feel we're doing well, but there are also a lot of things that actually we think we should we should do better. And yeah, so organizations seeking advice on, on you know, how they could address those challenges, I think is really what's needed. And fortunately, I should say, we see uh, a number of organizations doing so. Those are many of our partners we work with in the UN system. The NGO community, or uh, or also on the part of governments, in fact. I think it's important, and, and I, I find it fascinating. Um, I do have a question about you know the world has gone through a lot the last two years because of COVID, and I think especially for for Western countries, maybe they were not used to uncertainty like you know many of of uh right. so-called south uh used to living in terms of i don't know what will happen tomorrow if you look back at that what is now the biggest challenge for uh the, the ngo sector as a whole in terms of you know its role that it, it's uh, played before and what it should play today what, what are you seeing what are you observing it's a really good and important question because actually when the um, pandemic hit, particularly also in Europe, well, and the US. Um, we had, in fact, as um, uh, organization, we had very much the feeling this would be or might be a game changer in the sense of, of this might actually be a moment in which the humanitarian community, in terms of the way they work, will actually realize we need to work differently. 
because the way in which a number of our uh, activities are done may not necessarily be sustainable or, or, or you know, um, yeah, at least we need to reflect on the way we work. And we thought actually uh, the COVID-19 pandemic would um, be a major trigger in that. Well, I don't want to say it, it hasn't been a moment for reflection. I think it has for many organizations, but perhaps not in the way we thought it would actually. Yes, there is a realization in terms of the importance of particularly national and local organizations based in countries in crisis to ensure that they are at the center of humanitarian action and development work in that sense. Um, yes, there is a reduction. I also see it in my own schedule, a reduction of uh, traveling, uh, for instance, or use of um, uh, trains instead of uh, you know, uh, taking uh, taking uh, a flight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but is it fundamental change? I, w- I really wonder um, there as such. Clearly, and I think it's very important to realize that, so what we thought might happen is in fact, you know, that, or, that, that countries, including in what we call the developed world, would realize their vulnerabilities would um, um, adjust in a way their their thinking to the fact that, you know, from one day you can be, in fact, a donor, so to speak, as a country, to the next day, in fact, when you suddenly can become a recipient, if you see what I mean. And to be honest, I think a number of countries realized their vulnerability in certain ways, but I'm not sure they they have addressed that in the right way um, because obviously, first of all, in terms of the whole vaccines, it was spending for yourself. You know, obviously the, the, mm. the Western countries, you know, in relation to COVAX and everything, it was, you know, just a question of who's, you know, who has the most purchasing power, who's the quickest in developing uh, effective vaccines and all of that. But what is most important, of course, in the whole COVID situation in that sense is to realize the interdependence and the fact that everything is interconnected in in nowadays world in terms of globalization and so on. And yet, and I think one sees this particularly when it comes to forced displacement and so on, the, the emphasis on national borders the emphasis on you know protecting one's own country instead instead of protecting the world's population, so to speak. Yeah, there's a number of I would say reactions on the part of a number of Western governments, at least that you know I don't think are very helpful in that sense. So, you know, it's very much a mixed bag. I would say both. It has created opportunities and it has created a certain new way of working. I would say. At the same time, I think countries and, and in our way of working, we also fell back into old habits, if you like. And, and so that's why I'm saying it's really a mixed bag. COVID showed us that we are all interdependent, that we should you know, tackle these problems together um, and maybe only... You know, that realization was all only there for two weeks and then we went back to uh, business yeah. as usual, at least a big a big part of our world. How are you tech trying to tackle that within your own organization? 
Well, in relation to what I just said, um, you know, obviously we were trying to, to 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 change the way in which we work. For instance, I mean, obviously, as I said in the beginning, we're an organization based in Geneva. Um, uh, you know, we're very cautious to ensure that we're not ending up in an ivory tower um, in that sense and, and creating our own reality or our own bubble, if you like. Mm-hmm. So we're very much extending or at least making an effort to try to ex- extend and expand our network of people who do data collection and, and analysis and research in countries um, affected by uh, by crises as such. Uh, so that is one part in terms of, um, I would say, at least the way in which we work. I think in terms of content, uh, so the issues I would say we all care about, um, even more than before, I think the, obviously what has come up is the matter of inequality and double standards and all of that, uh, very, very clearly. Um, yeah, and inequality, of course, is a concern to all of us. Um, so, what, and as you know, what the pandemic did was emphasizing the existing inequalities even more, so to speak, and, and making them worse um, in a way. So, you know, those that were already on the margins of societies, you know, being even worse off, so to speak. So in that sense, I think, um, yeah, we're very, um, very much concerned about these these increased inequalities, so to speak. The way that then relates to humanitarian action, I think is quite important in the sense of, you know, obviously one of the principles of humanitarian action is to make sure that those that are worse off, in worse positions, so exactly those that are most affected, either by COVID or by conflict or by climate change, and often, in fact, and what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's it's compounding these effects, right? It's 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 climate change, it's COVID, mm-hmm. it's war, it's you know um, human rights violations, all on top of each other, so to speak, yeah. and um well that actually is a very significant indicator in terms of who is worst affected mm-hmm. by crises um so in a time of increased needs and increased inequalities yeah from a humanitarian point of view what becomes very important then there's a focus on those that are exactly most in need if you see what i mean so mm-hmm. who are most affected by these several crises one layer um, on top of each other. And um, yeah, that, you know, it's it's interesting in that context, Maurice, that so yesterday, um, uh, you know, was also on the front page of the New York Times um, uh, for 24 hours at least. Uh, the UN launched its be- biggest ever humanitarian appeal, more than 50 billion US dollars. What we know, in fact, is that the gap, so talking again about the gap, so you obviously there's the moral, ethical obligation of Western donors, the global community, you know, to bring up, to deliver the funds that allow these people um, uh, that are affected by crises, by these crises to be assisted. But we know, what we know in reality is that gap is growing between, in fact, you know, the, the needs that are rising and the available resources. At the moment, it's less than half of, of the funds that are needed mm-hmm. that, in fact, that are provided by donors. 
That then requires, if I relate this to this point that I made around inequalities and those that are most affected. So from a humanitarian point of view, and this may be a bit of a different um, perspective than perhaps is seen from the developmental side, but from a humanitarian point of view, you know, priority should go to those most affected, if you see what I mean. So the question, what we're now very interested in as organization is, you know, in a time of increasing needs, um, and and when resources are are well maybe going up, but by far not enough. So the gap between available resources and increasing needs is really growing. Our focus then and our interest then is to see how is the how are the humanitarian humanitarian agencies, the UN agencies and NGOs and so on setting priorities? Because obviously you could say, well, everyone in need deserves assistance. That's true. And as I said, again, this question then, you know, those this issue of the principle of those most in need, so it's principle of personality, is, is really then an interesting one to see, you know. So are we those assist most concerned about those who need the aid, the assistance most, so to speak? Thanks, Ed. I I would like to come back to some of those issues that you've raised uh, later in our conversation. I would like to, you know, we have now, we understand more about your organization and what is happening. Um, I would like to ask you a couple of questions about you. So how did you get involved in the work uh, that you are doing? And, and, you know, where were you born? And, and uh, you know, what did you study? And why are you in the place where you are now? Yeah, this uh, that's a really funny question Maurice because it puts a smile on my face um well it's already now in fact quite some time ago um but I was in the in the fortunate position to in my professional life which now in fact you know is I'm I've worked all my life in the humanitarian domain and that's now for 30 years um so says something about my age in that sense but I was in the fortunate position um, to have a sabbatical at some point, which part of it I spent in a program on leadership. And um, in that program, I was actually asked, in a way, the similar question: How did you end up in the humanitarian community world? And you know, what is you know mm -hmm. what drives you and all of that? Yeah. And I I kind of said, you know, wow, this is really by chance. And then when the when I told the person with whom I was having this conversation sort of my personal story, he looked at me and said, you think this is all by chance? Hmm. Well, you know, so that, that is really what puts the smile on my face because then I sort of realized hmm, maybe there was a bit of a conviction there. So let mm -hmm. me then explain what this conviction is. And, you know, what I tried to explain already in, in, in what I said earlier, a lot of the work that I've done throughout you know, my professional career is exactly around rights or obli and obligations in that sense and accountability. Are governments, are humanitarian organizations, as I said, mm -hmm. really doing what they should be doing? And so that element of accountability, I think, has always been, and it certainly relates to in injustice and inequality in that sense. I think that has always been a driver in me, so to speak. Um, I think when I was in high school, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, so, you know, exactly there was that already. Yeah, but why did that not happen? Why didn't you become a journalist? Well, well, it, 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 <laughs> the, the journalist didn't happen because, in fact, so there was a school. I mean, obviously, I studied in the Netherlands. I'm originally from the Netherlands, born in Rotterdam. 
Um, the School for Journalism was oversubscribed. The number of registrations mm-hmm. at that time were there was you know oversubscription. Uh-huh. Many more interests than people they could put there. Okay, so I thought, no, then I go in university, and especially in those days, if you didn't know what to study and you wanted to take a broad study, I thought, okay, I'll do law. But you know, I wasn't. I, I was certainly not interested in becoming a lawyer or a barrister or any of that sort. But I was in a fortunate position. Um, I studied international law in Le- at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And at that time, in fact, uh, soon after my general year, first general year, I could directly go into international law. And and that I thought was very interesting. That really fascinated me. Exactly like I said, the, the, the responsibilities and the rights of governments vis-a-vis the citizens in their countries, which, you know, is what international law is about. International mm-hmm. law, uh, of course, regulates the relations among states um, uh, for whatever, any area of activity that you can imagine. But it also regulates, international law also regulates the relation among states and their citizens, which is precisely called human rights law. And in um, uh, in wartime, in fact, there's also humanitarian law that includes a number of guarantees in terms of the protection of civilians. Now, of course, the whole question is then, you know, to some degree, does international law really exist because there's no international police and all of that? But that exactly fascinated me because obviously there's a set of behaviors, a set of norms that everyone has to comply with in that sense. So that really got my interest um, and, and kept me busy. And in fact, then what happened, um, uh, and this is where, you know, where I thought, oh, this is only coincidence. And then people told me, well, we don't think this is so much coincidence. At the end of my study, um, I needed to deliver, of course, a final uh, thesis. And um, I thought I had actually done uh, that final year. I had done a moot court competition. So talking about not being a lawyer, in fact, I was playing a lawyer in -hmm. front of the International Court of Justice. And that question was about humanitarian intervention. And humanitarian intervention is understood as one state um, um, entering another state by force to rectify or to correct correct a human rights um, situation. So you had these classic situations like um, uh, Vietnam in Cambodia to stop the genocide in Cambodia. Uh, there were a number of other examples, but every time, of course, what comes up in legally there is that there are, are ulterior motives, so to speak, on the part of the state using force in the other state. That so it's never only to mm-hmm. rectify the human uh, human rights situation, so to speak. And that's then the whole complication around humanitarian intervention, because obviously the use of force is strictly regul—I mean regulated under the UN uh, Charter, only in self-defense as such, um, uh, or authorized uh, by, the United, by the United Nations as such. So humanitarian intervention in that sense is a very complicated, where one state invades another state, to, so to speak, is a very complicated concept under international law. But then I thought, actually, so in the relationship between the state and its citizens, especially when there's, the citizens are in need, in desperate need, because there is an armed conflict or a disaster or another, or another crisis in a country. You know, in human rights texts and treaties, you have the right to life, the right to freedom of movement, the right to uh, assembly, the right to freedom of speech. 
what do these rights mean? In fact, in 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 such a crisis situation, and is there something like a right to humanitarian assistance, in a sense where a state could claim or where a citizen could claim from the state, you know, I'm threatened in my survival, I have a right to be assisted. Um, so, so that was long story short. That was my final, the topic of my final thesis. And I thought that uh, organizations such as the Red Cross, but also Ministers of Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, should mm-hmm. have an opinion on that. So I interviewed them. Um, and, and funny enough, and this, of course, is the history also between the Red Cross and MSF as such, particularly around Nigeria um, at that time, uh, particularly, well, not this was then late um, 60s, early 70s, it was particularly the... The, the the well MSF that uh, five French doctors that broke out of the Red Cross they because precisely they thought this right to humanitarian assistance should prevail in certain situations. So anyway, those were my conversations with mm-hmm. MSF and with Red Cross. And the next day, I got called by MSF um, after I had spoken to them if I wanted to work with them. So <laughs> you know, long story short, yeah. the rest is history because that indeed was my entry into the world of humanitarian action. And interestingly, this happened all at the time um, in 1991, mm-hmm. when in fact the US-led coalition was forcing Saddam to, because Saddam in Iraq had taken Kuwait. And of course, there was the international coalition that you know um, uh, went after Saddam and uh, particularly um, got him out of Kuwait. But then, in fact, what Saddam did in those days, uh, when he was still in power, in fact, he retaliated against the Kurdish uh, population in the north yeah. of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And so then exactly was the question, what can international the international community do now? So this whole question of humanitarian intervention or the right mm-hmm. to humanitarian assistance, because obviously Saddam was not allowing um, humanitarian organizations to work with the Kurdish population in northern uh, Iraq. So the question then was exactly, can international military forces provide assistance to the Kurds who were, you know, the, these communities, you may remember the pictures from those days, in the mountains of Iraq. This was exactly all happening at that, that time. So it was a very interesting moment when I entered, if you like, um, my professional career in the humanitarian world. Yeah, a, f- a fascinating story. Th- thanks for sharing that. Uh, I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't know that story. Uh, we we did study in this at the same university, by the way. So we might have met each other on the street right. Right at that time. Yeah, you know um, exactly. So that's that's uh, that's cool. Yeah. Hey, you know that um, this podcast is a spin-off of a hundred mile walk that I've been doing for more than ten years now, where I try to raise awareness about hunger and and poverty and injustice. Um, but then, you know, one and a half year ago, two years ago, I was not able to walk with others. And and uh, this year also I had to postpone it until March uh, next year because of some personal circumstances. But um, yeah, the question that I always ask to my uh, guest is if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, so 15 to 20 miles per day, for which cause uh, would you do that and why? <laughs> People who are listening, and maybe Maurice, you may have been, you know, people may have been walking 
or like to walk, do hikes and so on uh, for much longer than the COVID period. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have done some walks and so on. I mean, particularly in the mountains, of course, as you know, Geneva and Switzerland, so lots of mountains here. But it was particularly the COVID period, the lockdown period that, uh, yeah, really gave me the, the the impetus, if you like, to do some walks uh, and so on. So I started really to enjoy walking as well. And then part of one of my responsibilities is, in fact, I'm on the board of a small Dutch NGO, uh, which actually raises funds for refugees. And since 12 years now, Hmm. I should be correct on this, um, organizes what is called the Night of the Refugee, Mm -hmm. So, um, which I think is an amazing concept, where exactly... Obviously, people, you know, fleeing Syria, Afghanistan, all the crises we know, obviously they are forced to walk. So in solidarity with these refugees, this organization organizes this Night of the Refugee where you have to walk 40 kilometers and do as a fundraising tour. Um, Of course, it couldn't happen during the COVID period, but since I had done a bit of walking during that those lockdowns mm-hmm. uh, when it was organized again this time for the first since COVID uh, or since the, the lockdowns I decided to participate um, and it is a, you know 40 kilometers I mean walking 40 kilometers uh, which I suppose is about 20 something miles right uh, you know okay that that is doable but during the night is different mm-hmm. um, I must say and during doing it with a group of people is different too um, the night obviously is a very special moment. It's dark, mm-hmm. and although it's done in summer, it's still you know that of course. And this is really done in the countryside, so you can't immediately see the environment. But then gradually, of course, your eyes get used to darkness, and and you're more able to understand the environment in which you're walking. And you know, then again, you know, we're doing this in the Netherlands, very safe space. Can you imagine if you have to walk during the night, right? In these faraway countries, mm-hmm. insecurity and, and what have you uh, as such. But also this doing this with a group of people is interesting because for a moment, for a time, a certain time, you can keep silent. But mm-hmm. then also you get in, to talk with other people, you know, and you start sharing or telling each mm-hmm. other stories or, you know, what moves you to be walking there during the night. So that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is, you know, an extreme a good way to show solidarity and to experience a little bit only a tiny little bit of what refugees um, have to endure um, yeah so it's it, you know for me it, it gave me a huge satisfaction um, to do this and, and you know to show in that sense at least a little bit of solidarity great yeah, so you walked, talked, and listened. Uh, yeah. So, so um, not a hundred miles at once, but um, <laughs> no, no, you know, no, this is it great. was. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a good talk, a good walk, and actually, it took ex- us exactly eight hours. So you mm-hmm. know, the pace was okay, but the last two hours were were not easy. I can tell oh, you that. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I I can totally relate. Hey, and, and but I I find it interesting what you say when you 
you know, um, walk with others. It's, you know, it gives us a certain, yeah, you start talking, listening and all kinds of things happen. What happens during my talks is often we talk about, end up talking about spirituality and religion because you, you know, why are we here on earth? And you walk there, you think like after six hours, like, why am I doing this? You know, it's the purpose. Um, so, and then very often we talk about the younger generation. Are they different than our generation? Um, so my question to you is, is what do you see happening among uh, the youth in your community in relation to spirituality and religion? Yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting question. I best actually can relate this, I suppose, to my children who are, you know, in their early 20s now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say still youth. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> they, they, they see themselves as adults, well, only in age, I would say. <laughs> but um, what is so interesting, of course, and we have quite significant discussions on this in the family. Uh, and I also see it, in fact, among some of my younger colleagues. Um, yeah, discussions around inequality, and particularly, of course, everything now that's being framed as, you know, woke and, and, and or the cancel culture, you know, and, and I find it fascinating discussions, not easy ones. You know, in Holland, of course, the whole discussion for years, as you know, probably Maurice, um, you know, has been not only on Sinterklaas, um, but particularly Blackbeat, which obviously is, is very racist in that sense. So, yeah, you could say there are these very obvious sort of examples of things we really need to change into our Western habits or culture. Um, but, yeah, then I also realize it's probably much more subtle and so on, because actually what is happening with my children is they mention examples and where we get into discussions, where initially I think they're quite radical in their position. And then I start, you know, forcing me mm-hmm. to reflect like it, it forces, as I said, you know, things that we, developed as standard or so as normal or and 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 i think that's important to say as well you know if i take the example of black pete now of course i would say yeah obviously it's a very racist racist expression or manifestation but initially and certainly not as a child i would never have made that connection if you see what i'm what, what i mean and it's not as meant as an excuse um, as such, but it's just to state what was the reality, if you see what I mean. But the realities change, and perceptions of people change, and it, I think it's very important. So this is very much in the context of, you know, what I see preoccupies at least, yeah, the generation of my children is exactly to challenge, I would say, things, habits, and so on that we thought were standard or normal, and 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 you know, sometimes. As I said, this feels very inconvenient. And maybe I would say, you know, well, I don't agree with you, or and I do say that. But it also, as I said, forces me to reflect. And how do your children look at religion and spirituality? And is that different than you look at it? I don't necessarily think so. They may not necessarily, well, they, they don't go to a church necessarily or, or anything like that. But... Um, you know, and we have never asked them to or whatever, but much more what I think is important, what I do see in them is a recognition, very strong recognition, which I think also relates to, you know, the issues that I just mentioned in terms of challenging us and so on, a deeper belief in humanity and and a deeper belief in 
you know, the inequalities that you guys created through, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable, this discussion in the Netherlands, that whether we have to make apologies for, you know, for the slave trade and so on. I mean, of course, I mean, if we don't apologize for it, it's it's that the fact that that is even a discussion is already strange, right? I mean, it's it's so wrong if you see what I mean. You know, it doesn't mean necessarily for me that we have to abandon all those statutes or you know as as happened, but you know that you put it in context or that you put a a a, a sign with it to explain the context of then and compare that to now. I think is 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 very very important in that sense. But I think, as I said, it comes. I think uh, as when I look for my children from a deeper belief in humanity and the things that are common to all mankind. And I think that for me is a deeper form of yeah of of belief mm. or religion, if you like. Let let me make a little bridge to the sustainable development goals. And now a, a group of people within the world uh, is saying that, you know, it's great to have those goals, but because we did not pay attention to, you know, the skills and abilities uh, and, and knowledge that you need as in an individual and as a community, um, you know, that's why we have difficulties in reaching those goals. And they came up with something that's called the inner development goals. So there are five goals that they identified. Being, uh, thinking, relating, uh, collaborating, and action. Have you heard about uh, them? And then the second question is, yeah, what are your thoughts about that in terms of that we need to pay attention to ourselves, that it requires a mind shift uh, in order to make this world more sustainable and um, uh, more you know, uh, equitable? Let me say two things on this. Um, and, and first, and perhaps I would I would make myself unpopular by saying this. Um, I'm not sure. It's very interesting to you say the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals for my organization, are sort of the benchmarks, or you know, provide really the vision, and 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 you know, they they create exactly what we should be aspiring to, or what we should work towards. They have never served for me and for my organization in that way. I must say I feel yeah, very sort of ambivalent about the sustainable development goals in the sense, of course, I do not agree disagree with them. Of course, these are all things that you know that that need to be done or that should be put in place. But what I am missing, and this is exactly I think relates to it relates to my personal background, it relates to the issues that I'm working on, what I'm missing in or what i don't find enough explicit in relation to sustainable development goals and what i feel actually has been sort of being reduced or ignored is the rights agenda for me inequality and whether it's in relation to gender uh, so uh, discrimination uh, ethnicity i mean name everything that those issues for me are are right about the rights agenda. They're all and that so yeah, it, it you know it goes back to my background having studied human rights and so on. Um, and and I find find it very unfortunate that um, 
for me, in that sense, uh, to put it that way, the sustainable development goals are only almost a we are almost redundant because we have it in terms of a rights agenda. We have it in terms of the classic sort of individual political rights, but also the social, economic, cultural rights, and so on. It's all there. We all have already had it in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, so I don't. I didn't know, or I don't know necessarily, what the sustainable development goals added to to this. And nowadays, and even yesterday, in relation, in fact, to that appeal mm-hmm. from the UN that came out, more than fifty billion needed for next year um, for humanitarian aid. I saw a declaration from NGOs um, reinforcing that point. That 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 you know reinforcing the call but particularly putting it in the context of what has been called the grand bargain and what recently has been you know trying to 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 address that gap between needs and um and and, and available resources and um i did i did a word search in that document a five-page document and it, because it explicitly mentions the sustainable development goals but I did a word search on human rights. The word human rights doesn't come up once. It's not mentioned. Women's rights are, are mentioned a few times, but human rights, the search is not mentioned. I mean, that. sorry, then, then you lose me completely. Because for me, our work has to be based, and, and you could easily say sustainable development goals are based in rights. Well, I want to make that explicit. Because inequality in the world, I think, has to be addressed through a rights Agenda and yes, that may be very much the lawyer and everything in me, uh, but that for me gives more sort of meaning or content, and it's something I can do something about than necessarily the sustainable development goals, which I find more, well, in a way, too abstract. I I, uh, I suppose. Now, as to your other issue, in the sense of personal behavior and you know what one as an individual can do and and how you can reflect if you like the sustainable development goals um and again i'm connecting this to to rights advancing that rights agenda or for that matter if you like advancing the sustainable development goals requires leadership leadership in the sense of courage Leadership in the sense of taking right risk, leadership in terms of bringing others with you, we leadership in terms of enabling others to be leaders as well and empowering the people around you. So I think that re- what I just mentioned reflects a lot of, or basically may, may perhaps even all of the inner development goals you just mentioned. Um, it's something I feel very strong about in the sense of. Um, what I'm missing, where so one of the issues in relation to, as I said, to in relation to accountability, which is such a major theme in our work, I would say almost all of our evaluations and reviews that we do, we see leadership as a, as a major, major issue, where in fact leaders do not or miss a number of these things that I just just mentioned, where you know leaders are just see them as part of the system, and because the system says something else. They do will not take risk, or they will not, you know, they will not move the the uh, the, uh, the the issue forward, so to speak. 
Um, they will not, they see themselves, but they don't see their, their environment. I mean, any of those qualities or all of these qualities then, uh, you know, are often missed in that sense. And this is interesting. I mean, I'm mentioning this because since, especially since 2005, 2007, leadership has been a theme in the humanitarian world, put on the agenda also by, by UN agencies and so on. Well, we're now 15 more than 15 years later, and very little of it of it has been realized. And perhaps we would not disagree too much, but instead of framing it in the, in the context of sustainable development goals, I'm framing it very much in, in terms of a rights agenda and in terms of, you know, leaders who move that rights agenda forward. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real lack of that. Are you such a leader? And if so, and if not, you know, how do you work? How do you how do you continue to work on yourself? Well, you know, are you such a leader? It's always hard to say something about yourself. Um, but I do know a little bit what others say about me. And it's exa- and you know, I, I I do know a little bit what others say about me because obviously they ask me to be, you know, a speaker at events or or you know, uh, for, they ask me for certain things. And one thing. I know is at least that, you know, uh, they know me for being outspoken. And, and maybe that's because I'm Dutch. Uh, but I hope it's also exactly because of the kind of the values and the principles that I try to reflect or represent, if, if, if you see what I mean. So, yeah, in meetings, even official meetings with UN agencies or governments, I will not shy. I will not be shy. And I will ask critical questions. Um, in that sense. And so at least that's one way for me to try to advance an agenda. I think, or at least I hope, but I, I think I've learned to ensure, <laughs> you know, that of course the picture, um, which is very um, telling, which will because so part of that sabbatical that I spent on leadership Mm-hmm. It was exactly an exercise, a group exercise and um, in the woods, in the forest. And yes, I was out there, you know, meters away from the team <laughs> that was behind me. Right. What does this tell you? It couldn't be a, a stronger picture than that, right? So since then, um, I hope, no, I, 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 well, I think I can say that I've become a leader more to ensure that others around me are able to provide leadership as well. Hmm. Uh, so I don't only see myself anymore. Um, <laughs> it's already a long time ago now, but, you know, I think it's important to mention this, that, you know, at least that was a very important realization, right? Hmm. Yeah, so at least in terms, of course, you know, coming back to practicing what you preach, where we put so much emphasis on certain leadership qualities, of course, it's important that, you know, that you also have... One also has, you know, the self-reflex. I mean, leadership, good leadership starts with self-reflection. What is it that I do well? What is it that I don't do well? And where really, you know, should and how should I work with others and make sure that I give others a space, so to speak? So, yes, um, at least I'll, uh, you know, I'm making an effort, I feel, to be such a leader. I'm going to connect you with another leader uh, who has a question for you. 
a question for your next guest for me. Let's see. I think I would want the, the question to be sort of a, a specific one. So as you come to the end of the podcast, my question would be, what are the one or two things that have come up just as a result of this podcast, the virtual walk, as you've put it, that you would immediately action within your span of possibility and potential that exists with you today? And that's the same thing I would put back to your listeners right now. And I put it back to myself as well, too. With this opportunity, not with what you might know three years from now, not with what you might hope for if you studied a bit more, but just from the opportunity of listening and walking together, what would you commit to yourself? Because I think we also need to create those real, practical, beautiful, humble (laughs) commitments, um, first and foremost to ourselves. So that's for your listeners, but that's... And that's also for you. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful um, um, next question in relation to the conversation where we just were. Because, you know, in the last several days also, um, and I'm going, I think I can tell this now, I'm going to embark uh, soon, talking about leadership, I will be the team leader of a review that is looking at the UN's response, humanitarian response to the Tigray crisis in Ethiopia. Maybe a short summary about what the situation is about for some of the listeners who are not familiar with the situation. Could you do that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so what what happened? So what happened was actually about, um, this was November 2020, so uh, a little bit more now than two years ago, uh, when conflict erupted in the northern part of Ethiopia, uh, which is called Tigray, where the the Tigrayan forces, uh, well, they had created an opposition force, including a military force. Uh, in fact, um, uh, basically, um, you know, the idea was for them, of course, to create an independent part. Um, of uh, called Tigray in the north of uh, of Ethiopia uh, because of fundamental disagreements with the Ethiopian government. The Ethiopian government retaliated, um, and in fact has been uh, has since been bombing and attacking um, villages and 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 citizens and so on. Uh, so many of the rules that are part of international humanitarian law or human rights law have been violated. Um, uh, then, you know, if you take the classic view, you will say, well, both parties did that. And that's exactly what we have seen some of the UN agencies saying. Both parties have been guilty of war crimes and so on. In reality, in fact, and there's um, evidence also created on the human rights side, uh, where in fact there is so there's, there's very significant evidence that uh, the Ethiopian government committed serious crimes of um, war crimes and crimes against against humanity. So clearly, then from a humanitarian point of view, this raises a huge dilemma in terms of you know what are your actions in terms of your relevance? Are you still continuing to provide food, or are you also trying really to call for an end to impunity? And and so expect prosecution of those committing war crimes as such. So clearly, that creates all sorts of very difficult dilemmas um, as such. But this is exactly also what this evaluation that I will lead um, uh, in the coming months uh, will be looking at. Hmm. And I'm sh- I'm 
you know, I'm, I have to just to begin this um, uh, journey, as it were, this exercise with the UN agencies. But the question I'm sure that will come on my desk is exactly, you know, so is it better to to keep quiet in order to remain present on the ground and to, or to try to have access to northern Ethiopia, the Tigray area, and so work with the Ethiopian government? Or is it much better to be outspoken, you know, an activist and say, you know, what the Ethiopian government is doing violates international law and, and so on. And, and clearly this was a major question for the UN and maybe still is, although at the moment there's, there's at least the beginning of a peace agreement, which, of course, is good news. But I do know that there certainly was a question, a major question in the UN for, for, for many, many months uh, in the last two years. Um, that question, the answer to that question will probably have to be answered also by the review team, so to speak, that I will lead in terms of, you know, so what should the agencies have done, if you see what I mean. Obviously, the, the review will review what did the agencies do, but we also will need to come up with an assessment. So what should they have been, done, been doing? And so... Linking this to the previous conversation, I will certainly not hold back. <laughs> I will certainly push them, the UN, and so on. And yes, this has been done in previous cases uh, where, you know, reports have been written on the silence of the UN, leading to unacceptable uh, situations. As I said, the may, there is some concern on the part of me that, in fact, we may find a similar situation in Ethiopia, uh, you know, where in which the UN should have done more. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but at least I will ask the UN these questions very forcefully. And in the evaluation, we will push this issue, um, uh, you know, we'll make it a very prominent one. So that is my immediate response mm -hmm. because it relates very much to this idea you know of advancing a rights agenda no, no thanks thanks ed I, and my quick reaction and although i i, I try to um to put the emphasis in this conversation always on, on listening because what i what i realize is um and the, the, you know the listeners who have been with me from the beginning is that uh, i i realized quite quickly in the, in in the initial conversations that i had that I was not a good, as good as a listener as I thought I was. And that had to do with, you know, when I was starting to edit the podcast, I was like, oh, this person has said this. Uh, because I was, you know, very often busy with my reaction already. And then, you know, not not listening until the end because I had my answer. So I still have that in the conversation. So that's my, you know, my challenge that I have uh, often because I have... I am also from the Netherlands, so you know, I very quickly my opinion ready. Uh, but for me, I have to often to say, okay, you know, calm down, listen, listen, and and uh, digest uh, that information, and then you can still uh, give your uh, opinion. And but, and you uh, know what is interesting in that, Maurice? Because yeah. obviously, I completely agree with this. You know. In relation to what I just said on mm -hmm. this work that I'm going to do, what I will be most outspoken on 
will exactly relate to our list to the listening that you are emphasizing is so important. What I will ask is a what I will ask from organizations from UN agencies. Why did they decide to do what they did? So, which may be even more important necessarily than what they did. The question is, you know, in that making that decision, and there I will have to listen very carefully in terms of what was their decision-making process. For instance, in terms of speaking out on the behavior of the Ethiopian government or the Ethiopian military, if you see what I mean. Maybe, you know, it was better to stay silent. I don't know. But I want to hear from them why they took a certain, that decision then, if you see what I mean. And that required, because so it's not so much for me to be critical just on that silence. It's much more that they actually, maybe they had a very good reason, but I want to know really from them what it is, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I, I will be f- uh, following uh, you. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it will be, yeah, th- this is important stuff. So, so. Uh... All the best with with uh, this assignment. Um, we're slowly coming to the end of our conversation. I have some a couple of quick uh, questions for you. Um, the first one is, you know, music is very important to me. So I always ask uh, my my guests uh, to share with me a piece of music or a song uh, that best embodies who you are and why. Well, yeah. You know, and this, I mean, it's a great question, Maurice, uh, because I'm very fond of all sorts of music. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, of course, coming towards the end of the year, there's always these lists, right? I mean, you start to make your favorite list for the mm-hmm. year or, or even of all times. And, you know, what is the best song or your most, you know, exactly the, the song you favor most? And that really changes from day to day uh, in my case. But then I thought, you know, since it had sort of to reflect a little bit what we have been talking about um, and actually also relates to what I did looking back at the year. Um, so each time the Rolling Stones go on tour, you think it's the last time, right? I mean, these guys are late 70s. Uh, Keith Richards, I think, is 80. So, yes, I did take the opportunity to go and see them again. I think it was the hottest day of the year in France. Uh, seriously, it was 40 degrees Celsius in mm-hmm. the stadium, uh, and and Mick was jumping around <laughs> seriously mm-hmm. like he was a 20 year old something. So extremely impressive, I must say. Uh, but then, in fact, you know, so probably my most favorite Rolling Stone song is "Give Me Shelter," which they didn't play. Oh. <laughs> Fortunately, I'd seen them before. Yeah. Uh, other, I mean, other years and so on. So I've seen them play live Give Me Shelter. But Give Me Shelter is such an important song mm-hmm. for various reasons. Uh, obviously, there's the context of the, the Vietnam War uh, very much. But in fact, it wasn't only about that, from what I know. The song is also about um, rape, in fact, um, which also comes up in the lyrics and so on. Uh, so it's also about some of the personal circumstances um, as as such, or what was certainly on, on their minds uh, when they wrote that song. But then, of course, at the end of the song, what is really so important is, um, you know, it, it ends on a positive uh, note. Um, instead of it's a shot away, it's a kiss away, right? So you can turn it into love. Um, and that's really why I like Give Me Shelter so much. And also, I think in the context, I heard 
I heard it several days in a row, um, particularly this year in February when uh, the Ukraine, uh, well, the, the 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 Russian aggression against Ukraine really escalated, so to speak, um, on various radio stations. Give me shelter was played. So also in that context, it, for this year, give me shelter, and for for this podcast, give me shelter uh, would definitely be my favorite song, uh, Maurice. Yeah, no, th- thanks. Um, and and that song will be added to the Spotify um, playlist that uh, I uh, established. So, you know, all the songs that are picked by my guests, you can listen to that. And it's a very eclectic list, as you can imagine, from classical to hard rock. Uh, but I, it's cool. I, I like listening to it because it, you know, brings me back to the conversation that I've uh, had. Um yeah, your your question for my next guest. Well, that then actually also relates to the fact that we are now into December, end of year, you know, and then in fact, yeah, you start, as I said, your one reflects on you know the 12 mm-hmm. months sort of behind you. But of course, you're also thinking, you know, what what is it? I mean, whether it's good new year resolutions or just intentions for the next year. So I'm not sure when exactly you will do your next podcast, but I presume, well, it might be still December or, in fact, already into the next year. I would like uh, to ask uh, the next person who comes after me really to reflect on, you know, uh, his or her uh, aspirations or wishes for the new year. Great. I I like that. Um, Yeah. Any last message, invitation or question for the listeners before we close? So this podcast is not only about my professional career and what I have done and achieved. I think it's it you know certainly covers some of the things that that drive me and that inspire me. A lot of what I do and work on has to do with inequality and justice, and particularly with ending that in terms of you know holding governments, holding organizations, institutions to account for their roles and responsibilities um, as such. So, um, because, yeah, that idea of accountability, the way in which organizations or people use the responsibilities that are entrusted to them um, uh, is really close to my to my heart. Um, I hope you find it uh, inspiring and uh, I wish you uh, uh, a lot of pleasure in listening to it. No, thanks. And, and I, I I definitely enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure the listeners uh, yeah, uh, will as well. So thank you so much and, and good luck with everything you do and especially with this upcoming uh, review. Thanks, Maurice. Appreciate it enormously. I'm sure we'll uh, stay in touch. And all the best uh, to you and your work. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram